0: We wanted you to see that today, not because this is International Orphan Sunday, but also because New Hope is taking a deliberate step to embrace an opportunity for our church to get involved in foster care and adoption. So coming up in December, on the weekend of December 2nd, Scott and Katie Harding, many of you know them. Katie was just up here leading worship, and her husband Scott are going to be hosting a class, a 101 class. In case you're interested in learning more about what it takes to become a foster parent or perhaps an adoptive parent and bring children into your home. In my own personal world, Lori and I, our son Derek and our daughter-in-law Kristen adopted this last year and brought a blessing into our family. So we know what it's like firsthand. And if God's moving in your heart in that way for you to be part of that, we're encouraging on December 2nd um, to RSVP, first of all, Katie wants to feed you, right, Katie? Probably not you personally, but you're going to order food in. Yeah, okay. All right, so there'll be food available on at 1230 on December 2nd. What we want you to do is just watch the bulletin over the next couple weeks. You'll see that reminder information that that class is coming up. And if God's moving in your heart in that way, maybe just to even investigate it to see what would be involved in our family actually bringing somebody into our house. We're going to really encourage you to do that. Now what I'm going to ask you to do is go to Romans chapter 12 in your Bible if you have it, and you're going to see how that relates to the things we're talking about, especially in the way of being adopted and brought into God's family. Romans chapter 12, and we're going to get at uh, verse 10, and we're going to actually do all of the remainder of chapter 12 this morning, which I know is shocking to you because we haven't been moving at that kind of a pace lately. Last week we just did one verse, Romans 9, but we're going to do 10 through 21 this morning. Can be lots of scripture for you to look at, and um, maybe you've already looked at your notes, and you see that there's like six Greek words this morning. I'm not trying to teach you the Greek language. Hear that, right? Okay, I'm not trying to do that. The the reason for it though is it's so strongly linked with the things that Paul wants to communicate to us through this passage this morning. So you're going to find here's what he does. He's reaching back into the Old Testament to the Book of Proverbs. And he's bringing principles out of Proverbs all the way over into Romans, into the New Testament. And at the same time, he's emphasizing everything that Jesus said to us. I want to start out this morning with a quote from an individual. His his name is John Newton. You see this on the screen. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Hopefully his name is familiar to you because you just sang his song, Amazing Grace. John made many quotes and he wrote lots of hymns, but Amazing Grace is the most famous thing that he wrote and most people identify with that. 1779, he understood, he was adopted into the family of God, just like we are New Hope. We're just like John Newton. We've been reborn and we have a destiny in store for us, amen? Okay. Okay. We're going we're to get a rule down here. There's a lot of opportunity for you to say amen this morning, but you've got to do it with some passion, okay, because you have been born again if you believe in Jesus. Amen? amen. All right. It means you've got a new destiny. You've got a new future, just like John Newton, and that's why he wrote what he did. So let me remind you from 1 Peter 1, what Peter wrote about that. 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So as a result, you've got the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit of God has been placed in you. You've been bought at an incredible price. And because the Holy Spirit of God is in you, as we've discovered over the last couple weeks, you have a gift, a gift that's completely unique to you. God has placed it within you, an ability to serve God with your life. You've been born again. The Holy Spirit is there. You've now got the imprint of the Holy Spirit on you. And from that reality, Paul writes to us the reality that you've known the mercy of God, you've been adopted into his family, you've known the amazing grace of God, even though you didn't deserve it, even though I didn't deserve it. That's how he writes what we're looking at this morning. So I'm going to ask before we step into this, that we not take this lightly, that God would really impact us this morning. Would you pray with me? Let's pray for that. Father, I thank you for these students of the Word who have gathered here this morning. Individuals who want to know you better and some who may not know you yet at all, but trying to find out our place in this world and how we're supposed to respond to these things. So God, I ask that you would imprint us right now and that is done through your Holy Spirit. So we're surrendering ourselves in this moment. And we're asking that you would speak to us and speak to us powerfully. And we ask for that in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. What you find here is he's listing ten family obligations. And by that I mean the family of God. Whatever mirror you use to get ready in the morning, or maybe you look at your refrigerator when you walk by it often enough that you might want to put a sticky note on it, or a sticky note on your mirror that you get ready, you might want to write down these ten things. People have said that to me after each of the services this weekend. Wow, I feel like I should put this on the walls of my house. Look what he says in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality, and you want to go, man, Paul, would you take a breath? There's so much there. Well, in truth, there is a lot there, and you're going to see how it's all linked this morning. The reason we couldn't break it up is because of the way that he states it. He starts out with verse 10, be devoted to one another and give preference to one another in honor. Why start there? Because it lays the pattern for the remainder of the chapter, how we're supposed to treat each other. He says, this is the result of having a love without hypocrisy. You remember that last week, church? Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cling to that which is good, verse 9. Well, as a result of having a love that's not fake, no fake love with God, as a result of that, that love without hypocrisy, he says, you've got to treat people better than even yourself. Look with me on the screen, Philippians 2, three. Consider others better than yourself. There's a way of holding in balance my tendency, and I have this tendency, I bet some of you do too, this propensity, my instinct to elevate my needs before someone else's. And we're not talking here about developing a low self-esteem. That's not what the scriptures are talking about. There's a big enough problem with that in 2018. People have low self-esteem. That's not what it's talking about here. It's it's this pattern in our life to put ourselves before other people. And so he uses this word devoted, and it's philistorgos. You don't look for it in your notes. You won't see it. It's related to Philadelphia. That one you will see. And it's actually talking about family love, a deep abiding sense of family love, especially when you put devoted brotherly love together to the degree that you would treat people in the body of Christ like you would treat the members of your family. So how much do you love your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad? To that degree, we're being compelled here to love each other. So this type of love, according to the Bible, is actually an identifier that you belong to Jesus. Jesus said this himself, look with me on the screen, John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have agape for one another, that kind of love. So like, how is that a trademark? How would a non-believer look at me and say, oh, that person, that person must belong to Jesus? Because Jesus says, if you got this, it's going to be true of you. Here's how it's an identifier, here's how it's a trademark. Because it's not common, right? It wasn't common in, 20, in 2018. It wasn't common in the first century when Paul wrote this. Because people are always watching out for their own interest. And Jesus says, if you've got this, if you have this, even a non-believer is going to be able to point you out. And you know that it's not optional? It's actually inescapable. Look with me on the screen again. 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now he steps it up a notch because he says, if you're really devoted to that person, you're going to honor them, you're going to give preference to them in honor. And to do that, it, you've got to put it on like a stretchy tight t-shirt, You've got to wear humility like a garment. You've got to wear every place you go. So the second trademark of this, this, this issue of people being able to identify you, is humility. So Scripture says this, Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. So if I'm going to prefer you and you're going to prefer me, it's the word progeomai. It actually means setting something before. In other words, putting it before other things. And it's not speaking of putting myself before other things. Now, here's how it was drilled down into me as a young man. My mom um, wanted to teach me progeomai, and she didn't even know what that was, but she wanted to teach me this putting others first thing. And so I remember distinctly as a young man, maybe 11, 10 12 years old, walking up to the front door of stores with her, and when we would get to a a store, a glass door, my mom would stop and just fold her arms and stare at me. And she'd she'd just stare, and I'd say, Mom, what, what are you doing? She said, I'm waiting. And I said, for what? For you to open the door, right? How many of you have done that, women here, taught your kids that? My mom would stand there and wait, and pretty soon it sunk in. And I would open the door for her and she would go through, putting her first. So, as I became a teenager and I learned to drive the car, my mom would ride with me to certain places and I had to be chauffeured for a while. I mean, I had to have an adult rider with me in the car. And so, I'd pull into a parking lot and we'd get ready to go in. And I would get out of the car and I would look and my mom would just be sitting in her seat, twiddling her <laughs> hands, right? I said, What are you doing? And she'd say, I'm waiting. For what? For you to open the door. Putting the progeomai, putting others first is what she was trying to teach me. Now, what she was doing in that setting was teaching me respect, to honor someone else. Not because it's a sign of weakness, but as a sign of high regard. Now, I practice this in my adult life every single day. And invariably, I'll open the door for somebody throughout the course of a year, and and a, a lady will come up and she will turn to me and say, well, you don't need to do that for me. I can get my own doors it's not as though I'm communicating that somebody is weaker. It's a sign of really high honor that you regard them, and so you would open the door for them much like a servant would open the door for a king. Now, that goes beyond being polite. What Paul's talking about here is not just politeness. What does that actually look like in my daily living? Well, here's what it needs to look like that I would be quick to listen attentively to someone else. Like, how hard is that, church? How hard is that when you want to get your own thoughts out? That you would make good eye contact and listen to the other person without thinking of what you've got to say next, but really hearing them. That we would be quick to encourage another person, like, wow, way to go, well done, Encourage them in their accomplishments. So Paul uses this word may because he says this kind of honor, it's honoring something that is precious to you. So teme is used in the Greek language. It's valuing it to that degree. But then he goes on to say not lagging behind in diligence, meaning not to be lazy, not to be lazy in your passion or in your intensity. So he uses this word okaneros. And Okaneros, this next Greek word, is actually talking about somebody who's slothful. Have you known anybody like that in your lifetime? Who's lazy and not diligent and actually slothful? It makes you think of a slug, right? Something that's moving so slow. That kind of person, according to what Scripture says here, is actually irksome to the people that are around them. Have you known anybody like that spiritually? Because this is what it's talking about. Here's what happens spiritually. Slothful behavior not only blocks good from being done, it actually gives opportunity for evil to grow. My grandfather was a gardener and he tried to teach it to me. It didn't stick. I didn't really care for it that much. But grandpa used to say to me on a regular basis, and my mom would say it to me too, for weeds to prosper, Mark, all you have to do is leave them alone because they'll take off on their own. For, for evil to prosper, all you have to do is leave it alone and just let it go. So Paul counters it by using this word spudé. And he says, don't be slothful, but rather spudé. That's the word diligent. That's where the company Speedo gets their name from. Spudé, very fast, very quick, fast to act, actually with eagerness. Now, in context, what we've been looking at in the last couple weeks, we talked about how leadership, if you've got the spiritual gift of leadership, how that's supposed to be diligent, He's using this thought of all these spiritual gifts to be diligent in this. So for whatever gift you have been given, New Hope, you've got to be diligent in it. Whatever we do in living out our daily life in Christ, you've got to be done as so we're doing it with focus and diligence because Jesus is worth it. Right, church? Okay, like 10 of you believe that. Whatever we do for Jesus has to be done with focus and intensity. Amen? Amen. Okay, now you sound like you believe it. So that's an amen worthy of the king. The, The diligence that he deserves. And Jesus actually set the pattern for this. This isn't Mark saying this. Watch how Jesus spoke about this very issue. John 9, 4. I must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming, when no man can work... The reality is Jesus knew that his time was limited and that every single moment counts. He knew when his life was coming to an end at 33 years of age. You don't know when your life is going to end. It could end today. You're not promised tomorrow. So whatever you do, you do it with diligence. And Scripture speaks to this very issue. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, Do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, which means the grave. you translate that into 2018? It means stop burning up your life with meaningless activity, with useless things that you're involved in. Now, I realize what we're talking about here is passion, and here's a reality of passion. You can't manufacture it. You cannot manufacture passion. Football coaches try and do it at halftime. They try and bring their team into a locker room and encourage them to develop passion to go out and take the field. But typically what they have to do is start leaning into the memories of the players. This is your house. This is your field. You're not going to let them come in here and take your house from you. What are they doing? They're playing on their memory. What is Scripture doing? It's telling you to develop passion out of the reality of who you are in Jesus Christ that you have been saved by amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me? That's gonna drive passion, and that's what Paul's writing from here. That kind of passion, and you can't manufacture it. It has to be based in the memory and the knowledge of who God declared you to be, and you know who you are in Jesus Christ. So Paul says, as a result, be fervent in spirit. Now, now, where diligence pertains to action, fervency in spirit actually pertains to your attitude because fervency requires resolve. And so Paul uses this word "Zo," It's a Z-E-O, and it actually means to boil something, like boiling water. And not to the point where it's boiling over and falling out of the pot, Not out of control but more like a steam engine that's developing steam power and it's released in its persistent pressure in order to produce the energy to get the work done. My experience is probably your observation as well is one of the great stains on humanity is a lack of enthusiasm, a lack of passion, especially in spiritual issues. And the mindset is this, well, it's it's good enough. uh, It's just, it's too hard. Don't ask me to go there. It's just good enough the way it is. But many people have developed a mental list in their mind of their life failures where they've settled and thought, well, it's it's good enough. And that's the outcome of apathy. There's no commitment. It just takes too much. Scripture speaks to that. Galatians 6, 9, "'Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary.'" So he brings forward the next hardest step, persevering in tribulation. It should be no surprise to you that tribulation and prayer are linked together. Persevering in tribulation and devoted to prayer. They go hand in hand. Do a little reality check. This is one of your opportunities to say amen this morning. You knew hope. You are able to persevere against any obstacle, endure any tribulation in your life. Because we have biblical hope, right? Because we have a true biblical hope. You're able to endure, you're able to persevere, because we're not discouraged as those who have no hope, scripture says. Why? Because of the ultimate outcome. Have you read the book of Revelation? We win. Well, Jesus wins, but we get to win vicariously, right? We win in the end. So because that hope is real, you can persevere in anything. And that means any relationship that might have blown up in your life this week. Any financial loss you might have suffered. Any bad medical report you might have received. Anything that's going opposite of the direction you wanted it to go. Scripture saying you can persevere. And you can persevere in the midst of that tribulation. Look with me on the screen. Romans 5.2. We looked at Romans 5 about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. We exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint new hope. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So if you've got the reality that you can persevere in tribulation, he says you better be devoted to prayer then. And devoted to prayer really steps it up a notch. Because a believer who perseveres in the midst of tribulation is praying more than occasionally. Is praying more than, thank you God for my taco. I'm grateful for that. Praying more than just, now I lay me down to sleep. Because that person recognizes they can't go it alone. That's the person who perseveres in tribulation. Dr. William Barclay said this, No man should be surprised when life collapses if he insists on living it alone. Most Christians recognize and they would willingly admit it is really difficult to maintain a consistent prayer life. And I would say, that's a great struggle for me, and the reason is not hard to understand. It's pride. The reason is pride, and here's how it fleshes out. We are confident we can go it alone because we think we can, right? Right? We think we can get this done. And then if something goes south, God, will you bail me out of this situation because it didn't quite work out the way that I wanted it to. See, one of the reasons God allows perseverance in tribulation, one of the reasons he allows the tribulation in the first place is to take us deeper into relationship with him, to drive us deeper. So Paul uses this word proskatero. When he says be devoted to prayer, this is the word now, he used the word devoted earlier in, in the English language. It confuses us because it seems like it should mean the same thing, but it's totally different here. Proscatero devotion means to be stuck like Velcro together, to adhere to something where you cling to it. Literally, it means to be strong towards it. So check this, as continually As your body normally carries on the function of breathing and you've been doing it ever since you sat here or you would have keeled over, your physical body has been taking in air and expelling, taking in air and expelling and you didn't even have to tell it to do it. Your lungs do it automatically. As natural as that is for you, prayer is to be clinging. A daily function of activity, of conversation with God, in and out. And that's what devoted to prayer means. But Charles Simeon says there's a reality with this. Look at his quote. At times you will find prayer to be the most demanding task. There is in the heart of man a continual proneness to draw back from God and to restrain prayer. But you must not yield to this sad propensity. You must continue instant in prayer, knowing that if you ask not, you cannot. And he links it really interesting with the final part of verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. You seeing that in your Bible? Why are those linked together? Well, here's here's what's going on. Hear this out. From the viewpoint of the world, I own things. You own things. You have titles to your car. You have probably real estate, some of you, that you own, and you have deeds to that. From the viewpoint of the world, you own things. But you and I recognize that we're only stewards of the things that God has trusted us with, right? We just get to be stewards. We're just here for a limited period of time. So that means the most important responsibility I have to those things that I have title to is that I would be a steward over that item to meet needs, to meet the needs of people who have less. So Scripture speaks this way, Galatians 6.10, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Why is Paul writing this way? In the first century, poverty was really, really high, especially among the Jewish believers who had received Jesus as their Savior and they were completely ostracized from their community. They couldn't buy, they couldn't sell, and I mean a loaf of bread. They couldn't get anything and they were starving to death. And then you've got the Romans who are living in Rome who have professed Jesus and Rome's trying to kill the Christians and is throwing them to the lions. Paul's very aware of this issue that these people are suffering in incredible poverty And it was critical for believers who had to share with those who were in need. But check this, not only to the degree of helping, but actually looking for ways to help. Actually looking for opportunity, both believers and non-believers, to serve them. So in a day when inns were really scarce and very, very dirty, you wouldn't want to stay in a hotel in the first century. It was critical, crucial, that believers would reach out both to non-believers and believers and draw them in and invite them in. So Paul links this thought of hospitality with meeting the needs of the saints. Why? Well, the word hospitality actually means to pursue the love of strangers, to pursue them. So link this. This is what Paul's doing with Jesus' teaching. In Matthew, Jesus says, this is what it's going to be like when I come into my kingdom. I'm going to sit on the throne, and those who are on my right, I'm going to say, enter into the kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. That's the concept of hospitality. And then the Bible even takes it up a notch higher when it says this in Hebrews 13 too, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And now we come into the final section, the last couple verses here and they move pretty quick. And he says in verse 14, the hardest thing, if you think what you've heard so far is hard, wait for what's coming. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you Bless and do not curse. So you're not only supposed to resist retaliation, you're commanded to actually bless somebody, and we're going to develop that further in a moment. But I told you, Paul keeps borrowing all these thoughts from Jesus. Let's see what Jesus said about this very issue. Luke six twenty-seven. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, And it's not optional, church. It's a command. Did you know that the church was identified by that very characteristic from the first century to the third century? Until Rome took over Christianity and made it a state religion, that was the identifier. People would look at Christians and say, they won't return evil for evil. They don't return hate for hate. Those people are different. Well, that was true from the first century to the third century, and and then it became a government-sanctioned religion, and everything changed. I read this week about a young man who was in a a convenience store, uh, like a 7-Eleven, and he was working there as an employee. A guy came through the door, pulled his pistol, and was demanding money from the cash register. This young guy's 22. He's just trying to work his way through college and earn a living. And the guy was demanding money from him and he refused to give it to him. So he put the Glock to the guy's heart, pulled the trigger, and killed the 22 year old. Now, that young man's family were believers in Christ. As a result of their faith in Christ, when that murderer was sentenced to prison for life, do you know who the first one was to show up at his prison cell and visit him? The family of the young man who was killed. And in their very first visit, what they brought to him was the gospel of Jesus Christ because they knew what it was to be lost and found, to be blind and now see. And so they brought the gospel. Could you do that? See, that, that right there is blessing those who do us harm. So Jesus spoke to this issue in, in Luke 6. He says this, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you for even sinners do the same to really bless somebody who's persecuting you? Scripture's saying you've got to treat them as though you're your, they're your friends, and today that is completely the opposite of the world that you and I live in. What's the reaction today to hostility? Curse you! I want to bring curses on you. And the temptation is to curse. That's the reaction to hostility. But Romans is compelling us to ask for God's blessing on them. How hard is that? I'm here to tell you it's really hard because I practiced that this week. I said, okay, okay, God, when this was really, I mean, before God ever kicks you, know that he kicks me first, okay? So this week I'm plowing through this stuff and I knew it was coming But it hit me so hard that I had to get up out of my bed and get on my knees and begin asking for God to bless those who saw things differently than me. So here's the reality. When life circumstances bring us up up against people who care nothing for us and actually are opposed to all that we stand for, God says, ask that they might know my blessing because that's agape love. Agape is not seeking its own interest, right? It's seeking the love, the best interest of the others. That's agape. So my old nature, and I'm just speaking for me, I'm not speaking for you. My old nature is to say, curse them. But God says, no, ask ask me to bless them. Ask me. Ask me to bring blessing on them. That's a mind-blowing thought, isn't it, church? It, it takes you to a completely new place. So now Paul takes it up a notch even further. And he says in Romans twelve fifteen, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And you almost think, okay, whew, I can take a breath now. Well, you could. You, you could think that that's easier to do because we know what it is to show up at a funeral and weep with someone who's weeping. Or talk to a friend who just got a job promotion and say, I'm celebrating with you, that's great. But what about when it's your enemy? Because consider what that's right on the heels of. It's right on the heels of blessing someone instead of cursing them. So to rejoice with your enemy, what about when that other person's happiness is at your expense? See, my, my flesh's impulse is not to rejoice. It's to resent And Scripture says, don't go there. Look with me on the screen. Proverbs 17, 5. He who mocks the poor, taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. It is distinctively Christian to rejoice in the blessings of others, friend or foe. It is distinctively Christian to be really sensitive to the trauma that anybody's going through. Because our God calls himself a compassionate God. And it's one of the characteristics I love most about him. James says that God is full of compassion. So one of my favorite images of God is this thought that when David is being persecuted, he's being crushed by his enemies, and the tears are streaming down his face because he's sleeping in caves every night, David says to God, would you take my tears and store them in a bottle? Look with me on the screen at Psalm 56.8. Put my tears in your bottle. It's one of my favorite images of God. Did you know that about your God? God stores up the tears of all the experiences that have gone wrong for you. Put my tears in your bottle, and I love it when he is a compassionate God towards me. I especially love it when I need his compassion, but what about when he's asking me to do the same thing to others, whoever they might be, regardless of their position towards me, to show compassion in the same way he does, because I was a wretch, but now I'm found, and he didn't have to do that for me. So Paul says in verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly, Do not be wise in your own estimation. You might read that and think, well, that's talking about unity. Well, biblical unity is less about you and I of opposite minds coming together than it is of the result of understanding God's way of thinking. See, we would be tempted to think biblical unity is adapting to another person's point of view. That's not biblical unity. Biblical unity is the result of coming together and understanding what God has to say. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about unity. He says, be of the same mind. That's impartiality. And the most explicit example of this is found in the book of James. And it gives this incredible illustration of somebody showing up in church who's really, really wealthy and getting the very best seat in the house. And somebody who's really dirty and maybe they haven't had a shower in three weeks and giving them the seat in the back where they won't affect anybody else. And James 2 goes on to say, check it out later yourself, read it today. James 2 goes on to say, why would you do that unless you're showing partiality? That's not the nature of Christ. So very closely related to that, he says, don't be haughty in mind. Now, can you question, can you be haughty in mind and be poor? Sure. It's just a whole lot easier when you have resources, right? So if you're haughty in mind, you're, you're minding high things. Well, this partiality that he's talking about here. Is a reluctance to even associate with lowly people. So we get this strong image of a poor man in dirty clothes coming into a church, and somebody makes him sit back by the closet door. See, the idea here is not disassociating with people of influence. The point here is there's no hierarchy in a biblical church, there's no elitism or aristocracy. So he ends with this really forceful directive don't be wise in your own estimation. Get off your high horse. You were all lost to sin, and now you've all been saved. Leon Morris said it this way, the person who is wise in his own eyes is rarely so in the eyes of others. (laughs) That's pretty good, isn't it? That's that's worth writing down. Here's how he ends it. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But what about God? What, what about? And in that very quick response we're tempted to have, we think there's exceptions to this. And there's no exceptions. When Scripture says never, it means never. Right, New Hope? It says never. It means never pay back evil for evil. If possible. I'm so glad that Paul included that statement in there. If possible, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Well, it's not always possible because it's dependent upon that other person. What do I do then? Well, boundaries. You have to know what your boundaries are because there are relationships that are toxic. Jesus had people who wanted him physically, literally dead And there's times when you have to remove yourself from an environment. So if possible, see the fulfillment of this condition is actually dependent upon the attitude of the opponent, the irregular person. If you go back to 1979, there was a book written called My Irregular Person, and it was written by Joyce Landorf. Joyce Landorf's irregular person was her mother-in-law. And the reason she wrote it in 1979 was because her mother-in-law died in 1978, and she didn't want it to be published while her mother-in-law was still alive. But she based it on this verse that every single one of us, even if we're believers or a believer to a non-believer, is going to have an irregular person in their life. My responsibility is to make sure my side of the relationship is right. So Paul finishes this way in verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. That phrase, heap burning coals, it was actually borrowed from the Egyptian culture. The Egyptians were known for when someone committed a public crime or a shameful act, they had to wear a, mental, a metal helmet, and somebody would put glowing hot coals on their head, and they had to walk around among the community so everybody could identify them as a person who had done shameful things, a little smoke going up from their head to identify them. but Paul's just borrowing that imagery and bringing it over here into this Thought of When you do that, you're just returning and let God deal with the shame on them. Because no matter how serious the wound is that someone has done to you, you're not qualified to render punishment. Only God can do that. And throughout the course of my life, I've heard people say, well, what about the Old Testament where it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Well, you understand that that was written for governing authorities, for the government. That verse is referring to civil authority. And the reason it was even put in place was to make sure that it was preventing that there would be a punishment that wasn't more severe than the crime that was committed. So withholding vengeance is one thing. You don't have to do anything. You just don't do anything. But actually returning good for evil, that's quite another And that's why Paul ends with verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, church, we know who this was written to. Paul's writing to the Roman Christians who are about to be fed to the lions It's written to all of us who are believers in Jesus, but we know who this is written to. It's written to believers, believers in Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Of all the principles that you've looked at this morning, to what extent did Jesus carry these things out? 100%, right? 110%, as far as He possibly could carry it out. So check this. He didn't carry out on us the vengeance that we deserved, wretches that we are, opposed to God, but rather, he took the vengeance, the wrath of God upon himself so that I wouldn't have to, to bring us back to God. So with that reality in mind, how in the world are you and I overcome by evil? Well, certainly not because we're crushed by it through the circumstances. Let me flesh that out with you. Think of Paul. He's in Asia Minor, and he writes this amazing statement. My foes are against me. They're before me and behind me. I am pressed in on every side to the point of almost fainting. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Remember how he ends that? Nevertheless, we are more than conquerors. That means it's not the circumstances that overcome us. It's clearly not the circumstances. You and I are vanquished, and there's a word you don't hear every day. We're vanquished by evil when we're diverted by evil. In other words, when it takes us off course, when it takes us off mission, off mission from what? from our path of responsibility. Hear it out. Suppose you're going through a struggle right now. I don't know what the struggle is, but it's a hard one. And in the midst of it, you doubt that it is for your good. But God has already declared, if you believe in me, I'm working all things together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. But it doesn't feel good right now, God. I don't like what I'm going through. So suppose because of the circumstance you're going through, you're tempted to doubt that it's for your good. In that moment, you're overcome by the evil when we think it should be for our immediate good. But God never put a timeline on that, did he? He never said, I'm going to do it tomorrow. He just said, I'm working all things together for good, but there's no timeline on it, and we want it now. So here's the issue. Do the circumstances crush us? Or is it our response to the circumstances that crush us? The point is this. If we allow ourselves to be overcome by our own evil response, the own, our own evil is much more detrimental to us than the evil that was originally done. That's why he's writing all these things. Now, perhaps you're very tempted right now in this moment to think, you know what, Mark? I think that is true. But it would have been so much easier 100 years ago when people were more civil towards each other. You go back 200 years and people actually had respect for each other. But the tension and the anger and the frustration going on today, how am I supposed to do that? Paul obviously didn't live in 2018. This is a different climate today. Here's a reality check for you. Human nature does not change And let me just show you a quote from 1824. I don't even know who authored it. I read so much material in the midst of a typical week, I forgot who wrote it, but here's what he said. What a very hell is this world where passions are let loose and men are left to perpetrate all that is in their hearts. Even under the restraint of wholesome laws, there are so many quarrels generated. And so many resentments harbored that there is scarcely a society or a family in which real harmony prevails. 1824, New Hope. Does human nature change? No. We're the same as we were 2,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago. It's still the same. So let me ask you this, New Hope, how different a world would you and I be living in today If God's biblical direction in Romans 12 was followed, here's what I know, it begins with me. It begins with my social circle, with my sphere of influence. It begins with you. Last quote, I promise, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. When you are thoroughly aware of how much you owe your master, you will not readily take your fellow servant by the throat for the few pence that he may owe you. Last chance to say amen this morning. God is on his throne. Amen. So God is on his throne, and even though all things may not be right in this world right now, even though all things aren't going the way you may want them to go, Jesus will one day make all things new. Amen. Now, there's a hope worth living for. That's a hope worth pursuing. And I don't mean hoping in hope, I mean hoping in the one who can deliver hope. So, in the meantime, he has you and I here to be his hands and his feet to a generation who's wondering, where in the world did love go? What does it look like? It's on you, church. It's on me. I pray for us that way. Let's pray together. Father, these are weighty things, and we do not take them lightly. And Sometimes you have to knock us upside the head, and perhaps you've done that for some people this morning, reminding us of who we are before you and our responsibility. So I ask that you would move us on from this environment, not with these things quickly escaping, but with us having total recall throughout the course of this week, when someone cuts us off in traffic, when something doesn't go the way we want it to in the work environment, or maybe in the midst of a relationship tension. God, that we would take on this afternoon and tomorrow of people full of passion to do these things as Jesus would have us do it that we would exalt the name of the one who is worthy of all exaltation. God, that people would look at us and point at us and say, that person is different. Let these things be true of us, that we might draw people into relationship with you. I pray for that in the matchless name of our soon coming king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.